2: Hello, and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Fiducci, and this time round we're doing the TV show The English. Technically a miniseries, I think. It certainly seems to emphatically end, but hey, you never know with sequels, do you?
1: I'll be back.
2: So, if you don't know what The English is, It's a sort of play on words in terms of the title, more on that in a moment. But what it is, is basically it's a Wild West TV show that's on both the BBC, but it was a joint venture with Amazon. So you'll be able to see this, if you're not in the UK, on Amazon Prime. Presumably all episodes will be downloaded at the same time. Just six episodes, and it really does feel like the TV series is done. It stars Emily Blunt, and it stars Chaske Spencer. Can you shoot? I have to. It was created by, written by, and directed by Hugo Blick. So, there's somebody who really put their heart and soul into a project. Well done, Hugo. And this is an example. I, most of the time, talk about stuff that I really love and hope that you love too. Occasionally, I talk about stuff that I just think is an absolute dumpster fire of a thing. And this is kind of an exception. I should have absolutely loved the English I thought it was good it's certainly not bad I didn't find it frustrating or annoying or irritating something like for example Peaky Blinders which is trying way too hard ironically obviously every show is trying but it's sort of like when you're artificially trying to be edgy or something like that that is not the case here but it does strangely miss the mark for what it's going for and I hopefully I'll explain to you why. And look, maybe as I describe it, you'll go, "No, that's exactly what I'm looking for, Jem. But I don't want to oversell it either, because both my wife and I were sitting there and going, "Nearly, not quite," kind of thing.
1: Just it by that
2: much. Anyway, so what, what is it? The, the story is about Emily Blunt. And do you know what? I barely remember anybody's name in this because that's not the point. The thing about the English is just I encourage you to... And I'm hoping that Greg will be sticking stuff in here, obviously, throughout the podcast. As I record, I don't know what he's going to do. What you gonna do? But I hope that he at least puts in a little bit of the theme tune for it. Your wish is my command. Because... The moment you get into it, it's like, oh, I I get what you're going for here. The actual visuals of the opening, as they do all the sort of the credits, is, or like, it looks like it's almost like torn out pieces of paper, overlapped each other, very sloppy painting, very broad brushstrokes, as, you know, the names all come up, and... With it, there's this rather epic music and oh, with a, sort of like a lonesome French horn in it, and it's like, right, I've got it. This is clearly riffing off the Dollars trilogy. So we're back to the 1960s, Sergio Leone with Clint Eastwood and the three movies, A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly.
1: In this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those are loaded guns,
0: and those
2: who dig. And those are towering monuments of Western cinema. And I mean Western as in the genre, but I guess technically also the location as well. But the irony is that they are referred to as spaghetti Westerns, and to give you a little bit of background about that, there's this whole spaghetti Western ethos that happened in the 60s and 70s. What do I mean by that? Well, basically, Westerns have been there since the very beginning of movies. So basically, The Great Train Robbery, which was released now... Jim did not have the notes in front of this. I'm going to say it's something like 1903. It's only about 11 minutes long, but it's considered, in essence, the first movie that actually has a narrative it has a beginning middle and end of this movie so i would encourage you you can absolutely see it on youtube obviously it's silent and black and white it's 11 minutes of your time but the point is they picked westerns and as i said in several other episodes there was this great interest in the wild west throughout the world it was the last great frontier and it was full of like legendary characters you get people like Billy the kid you get Geronimo you get Custer these are all real individuals that lived their lives but in a way they were written about in the same way that you would Robin Hood or King Arthur or you know somebody who actually existed like Julius Caesar these people kind of larger than life and going on daring do what did they actually do versus the way the stories were written sometimes huge differences but they were big business indeed you got buffalo bill who ended up technically winning um, medal of honor which is the highest award in u.s military services like the victoria crosses in britain except it meant something different when bill got it so i he posthumously had it revoked because everybody who had it at that time got it revoked anyway it was a whole thing But he gathered together all these different peoples and put on a big show, the Buffalo Bill Wild West show toured not only america to show people in very much in inverted commas the good old days or or at least recreating the wild frontiers the wild west all that kind of stuff who's
1: got the stuff that made the wild west wild who pleases every woman man and child who does his best to give the customers a thrill colonel buffalo bill
2: but it toured europe as well prince edward loved it so much that he ended up convincing queen victoria to go and see it so you got somebody like queen victoria going to see these people who traveled across the atlantic to show things that have been happening in their country you had native american peoples there you had various someone like annie oakley for example a real rootin tootin hero from the wild west she was there and calamity jane as well they, they met the Kaiser as well. Indeed, when World War I started, she said that, you know, she she allegedly shot a, a cigarette out of the Kaiser's hand and said, I, I should have aimed for somewhere else, and that would have saved a war. What you've got is an unusual situation where the people who were part of the real history are beginning to create the legend. At the same they're almost in charge. People like Wyatt Earp was alive for long enough to actually see some of you know the gunfights at the OK Corral being turned into actual movies so that's if you like the maelstrom so westerns are absolutely in the DNA of Hollywood for example but the reason why we get them movies again and again in, in the silent era and then into the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s is well A people went to see them but B they were really cheap to make sticking up a camera In Monument Valley, for a movie like The Searchers, for example, that is epic landscape, and yet it costs nothing. You just point it at the natural beauty of the prairie, of the grasslands, of the waterfalls, of the canyons, all this kind of stuff. You've put in some good music, and already it feels like a million dollars, and yet it costs you five bucks, kind of thing. So Westerns were quite cheap. It was a good way to get a good return on investment. As soon as you have something by comparison, like a Spartacus or whatever. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! You have to have casts of hundreds. You have to have ornate and not easy to build things like uh, Roman villas and stuff like that. So anyway, so that's why they were around. But to make them even cheaper, you could go to Europe. And indeed, Italy... ...had a huge renaissance of just churning out cheap sword and sandal movies. Basically, they created some standards, of like Roman streets... ...and then you would film 20 different movies over a 10-year period in those same streets. Everybody shared the cost. Really good way to keep your budget down. And then, of course, the sweepy countryside, you can, you, you know, as I've already said, that's quite cheap... Basically, Italian and Spanish and French actors are more likely to be paid less than a Hollywood star. And this is the thing worth remembering, that when you... if Let's talk about the very first of the Spaghetti Western trilogy, A Fistful of Dollars. First of all, that was a remake of the Akira Kurosawa classic Yojimbo. Instead of Samurai, we got a cowboy. And then you've got Clint Eastwood in it, and he's obviously talking English but then everybody else around him is dubbed. If you look at their lips, they ain't talking English. And this obviously must have been quite difficult for Clint Eastwood because he didn't know what they were necessarily saying, and so he just reacted, and so there are these long pauses, and it absolutely fitted Eastwood's style of acting. And this led to a whole bunch of movies. As I said, Sword and Sandal epics, westerns, also loads and loads of World War II and war movies, completely historically inaccurate but there were enough explosions and chases and dangling off cliffs to fill a theater and make some money so they're just grinding these out not necessarily high quality we remember things like Sergio Leone because he created some really impressive visually stunning and arresting westerns and other genres as well but then you get something like perhaps the other most famous western from the spaghetti western era is Django the original one which obviously inspired Quentin Tarantino to do his own version of it like 50 years later so that's what's going on and that's the feel of the English indeed not only are the credits and opening titles a reference to it but what's interesting is they shot in very similar areas to Sergio Leone now I've called them spaghetti westerns and indeed, the studios were in Italy. Sergio Leone is definitely Italian. But here's the ironic thing. They were filmed in Spain. So some people say, we should call them paella westerns, not spaghetti westerns. And so you've got these beautiful shots of the prairie. And yeah, when they when they flash up on the screen in the English Wyoming, it's like, yeah, it looks like Wyoming, but actually it's in Spain. Nobody in this production of the English actually went to America to film it. So, you know, I love the fact that there's all this reverential stuff going on in it. Now, when Chaske Spencer, if you can't tell from the name, he's obviously a sort of average white guy. He is Native American. He was saying, you know, how often do you get to be the lead man if you're a person of color? And he's right. He's absolutely right in this. And he is phenomenal. He is kind of channeling that gruff taciturn hero
1: i've lived here my whole life i've seen hell and i made hell
2: like clint eastwood in the fistful of dollar all these spaghetti western trilogy you know what i mean interestingly there he's referred to generally as the man with no name and yet he is specifically referred to various different names throughout but the point is the names change the reality is the first two movies they weren't trying to sort of set anything up they're kind of Excellent films, by the way. Uh, please, I, if you haven't seen A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, uh, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is obviously the best of the three, but what's interesting is that's actually, it's the last one shot, it's over three hours long, but it's actually a prequel to the other movies. The other thing is Lee Van Cleef is in... Uh, he is killed. Spoiler for, for a movie that's been out for like 50 years, but he's killed in and he appears in For a Few Dollars More, but he's also plays presumably another guy, but acts the same way, dresses very similarly, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So what's going on there then? Anyway, and he might die in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly as well. So the point is that these Western films, they really did change cinema when they came out in the 60s, specifically for acts of violence. Just to get technical for a moment, by the time you get past the 1930s, there had to be a disconnect between a gunshot and somebody dying. So in other words, you could show an image of a gun being fired, but then you would cut to another image of a man doubling over, holding his gut and falling over. So that would be, so there, there is actually a break. There are, these are two different images. But Sergio Leone simply didn't know that rule in America. So a classic example, and the, the, the point that shocked people in the 1960s, is in the front of the screen you see the back of clint Eastwood, and these guys come through the door at him and so you see Eastwood pull out his gun and in the same shot he fires the gun and these men double over and fall to the floor it's not spraying blood everywhere there isn't viscera everywhere it's it's to the modern eye it's a strong and well shot action scene but it's it's not like oh my god that's got to be rated 18 or r but at the time it actually broke rules about what you could depict in terms of gun violence on the screen in America uh, so there we go now there's uh, since then it, it, obviously this is this is not a thing anymore in movies particularly in American movies so what Chaske Spencer is doing is sort of like he is kind of that man with no name although ironically he's got two specific names his Native American one and, and his English language one Eli so yes he, that's who he is And he's got this beautiful, deep voice. You alone? Yes. Anyone in there with you? No. Nothing you can do. And so when he talks, you just want to listen to him. But meanwhile, we've got Emily Blunt turning up as a woman who seems to be on revenge, and you're not quite sure why, and she's clearly English, but she can very much take care of herself, even though she has the poise of a lady and she dresses like a lady. And so the big question is, so what's going on there? Now, in reality, Emily Blunt is the star. When Chesky says, I'm the leading man, you are, but you're playing second fiddle to Emily. And Emily Blunt, I'm a huge fan of. You know, this is a woman who was in a kind of forgotten movie called Edge of Tomorrow, which later on got renamed Live, Die, Repeat, which was a great sci-fi movie, with her and Tom Cruise, and I mean, basically everything I've seen her in is just just so so good. And I mean, she's she's played a reboot of Mary Poppins.
0: Oh, listen to the three of you—you're all worrying far too much. After all,
2: you can't lose what you've never lost. And it didn't do very well at the box office, but everybody said Emily Blunt was Mary Poppins reborn. Well done, her. She plays strong female roles. I love her to bits, and, you know, she's a national treasure for England, what can I say? And she is great in this. This is the thing, everybody is great in this. But, like I said, it doesn't quite work. My One of my problems is the absolute opening. Before we get the opening credits on the first episode, we have this very heart-wrenching monologue by her about how much she misses this native american guy and it's incredibly melancholy and melodramatic quite frankly and actually it doesn't match the rest of the series at all
1: without you i'd have been killed right at the start
2: one of the problems is is these two are meant to kind of fall for each other it's a little bit unclear i get the the point that maybe the argument is that a man and woman can become really really close without having a sexual relationship if that's what they're going for i get it but at the same time why therefore have this kind of like you know i i miss him with all my heart kind of thing it's sort of like look i miss my mates when they're not around and i have incredibly fond memories of them but i wouldn't quite phrase it that way so i think i think the problem is they're trying to have their cake and eat it too Is it a story of kind of like love, or is it kind of like buddies together, like lethal weapon between a Native American tracker and an English lady? But if it is that, they, they actually don't have quite enough true screen time for them to be buddies. They sort of save each other's lives on a number of occasions, but the problem, of course, is both of them turn out to be incredibly capable. So it's not like one is constantly bailing the other one out of trouble. So that's one of the problems. If you like, everything's there on the screen. The other thing I have to say is Hugo, well done on the cinematography. This is breathtaking stuff. As I said, it's kind of easy when you've got these epic landscapes to to sort of like wow. But they absolutely pour out these sort of almost sort of pictures in motion, sort of oil painting type images of of the of the Wild West, even though it's in Spain. So yeah, it looks gorgeous. It's brilliantly acted. When there are flashes of violence, they can be incredibly violent and horrible and, and disgusting. They've got some really interesting characters, although I would argue some of them don't hang around long enough. There's this woman with these weird tinted sunglasses called Mog, and when you see the full reveal of her, she is shocking. And you, you've never seen somebody like that before. I'm going to go a little bit more into Mog when I get into the history bit in a, in a in a minute. But, yeah, you can tell that this all... All the ingredients are there. I love the Spaghetti Westerns. You know, I love Emily Blunt. I love the cinematography. But it just doesn't quite hang together. I think one of the problems is, going back to Chaske, he is great. But if you are going to be that strong, silent type, a bit like the man with no name you need them to be a little bit more silent it's a bit like mandalorian you not only do you see you, you hardly see his face you hardly he hardly talks in some of the episodes but he's a man of action and the actions tell you about the character if you've got one of those people just sitting there by a campfire spilling out their story it may be beautifully said but it's a classic example in screenwriting of show don't tell and the main way we find out about him is he literally pours out exposition which just isn't as satisfying as these little hints and glimmers that might allude we can sort of like fill in the gaps ourselves as as like he, he clutches a child's doll and it's like oh clearly he had a daughter at some point or something like that that isn't quite subtle enough for that kind of character while we're in the middle of the podcast i'm just quickly going to say please click subscribe please give us a review that helps people just discover us Please also check me out on Twitter for about however long that's going to last. It'll it'll survive. At Jem Daduchu, The link will probably be underneath this episode. So, yeah, say hi, and I tell you...
1: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie
2: Poor Thanks, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. the next podcast is going to be all about and i love to get people's opinions and thoughts what do you think of this do, have you seen the english what did you make of it so i'm heading towards the history bit but we're not quite there yet because why is it called the english because from the point of view of the native americans everybody's just referred to as the english they're just foreign settlers it doesn't matter if they're actually danish or irish or whatever it's just it's the word for if you like the tribe of white people It is very clever. I actually think the sort of story of revenge, because of course it's a story of revenge, that always makes a good Western, I think it's a little bit complicated. But what's interesting is, I was sitting there really not enjoying myself by about episode four. I think episode four is the one where we suddenly jump back in time to 1875. The events of what we're seeing are happening in 1890. And I I never like a flashback episode because, of course, you're not pushing the narrative forwards, are you? So anyway, by then I was really, you know, if I was going to give it stars, I was going to give it like two and a half out of five. But they do a great job of pulling it all together in the final episode. The the final episode, number six, really does have some huge hammer blows and it makes sense. But again, the actual final sort of like showdown between the big bad and, and Emily just doesn't quite work. It it doesn't quite work, and I don't want to say too much about it, but there's no threat there. And, you know, you can understand that you can have a bad guy perhaps holding your loved one with a gun to their head. There's threat there. There isn't any threat there. I don't quite understand why they allow the villain to do a big monologue when... They aren't armed, and everybody else is, and they've been proven to kill people in the past. This is not like, is Emily Blunt going to have the guts to pull the trigger? She's already pulled the trigger multiple times in this TV series. What's she waiting for? So anyway, watch out for that. But overall, if there is a great emotionality to that final episode, which I'm going to say is probably usually lacking from something like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So... Now let's get into some of the history, and we go into lots of weird and wonderful places. One of the big problems I have about it is, please bear with me on this, let me get to the end of the of the thought before you cancel me, is one of the things that they talk about a lot is how poorly the Native Americans are, are treated by the settlers and by the American government. This is absolutely true. This absolutely needs to be a conversation. At the very least, it's ethnic cleansing. At the very worst, it's genocide. It was terrible the way the American government cheated, lied, annihilated these local civilian populations. And this is absolutely gone into. Problem is, it's not new information to us. And whereas I would say a slightly better screenplay would, you know, it's there in the background. What we don't need is a conversation about it in virtually every single episode you know it's like it gets boring it, the more you talk about a thing the less shocking or, or interesting it is it just becomes repetitive and and it, there's a point at which it's like yeah i i get it C- can we kind of get on with the show now please or the story now please so again absolutely historically accurate absolutely something that you know, to have mentioned it at just a couple of times would have been more powerful is my point and a sign that this is a kind of revisionist western where an awful lot of John Wayne's career was shooting those damn engines, as he would have said, not what I would have said, and it's like that's just not acceptable nowadays. Indeed, one of the claims of Clint Eastwood's career as a cowboy is not once did he shoot a Native American. He was always shooting bandits and things like that. So, there we go. That's, that's if you like, one problem. But at the same time, while they're talking about the horrors of the of the Wild West, Going back to that woman, Mog, very minor spoiler here, but I think you could probably guess some of this stuff, is she hates Native Americans. And then she has a meeting with Emily Blunt, and she reveals why she wears these dark glasses, because the Native Americans had cut off her eyelids. She can't blink. The sunlight, therefore, is incredibly harsh to her. And the other thing she does when she takes off her bonnet is she reveals that she's been scalped, Now, if you don't know what scalping is, it's basically scraping off the top layer of skin and hair off the top of your head. I would be a very poor scalp because there's not much up there. But it was basically assigned by not all, but a number of Native American tribes that, you know, you have been, you have vanquished your enemy on the battlefield. It is, if you like, proof positive that I have slain a fellow warrior. But there have been. Obviously, scraping it off is incredibly painful, cutting off the, the the top part of your skin off your skull, but not breaking into the skull. It's not necessarily fatal in and of itself. And there are photos of people who have survived scalping. And if you like, it's a reminder that the Native Americans didn't completely lack agency. They were utterly outclassed by the sheer number of settlers, the money they had, the resources and the technology they had, and also the resistance to various diseases as well. All these things meant that they were kind of doomed as a native population but at the same time that doesn't mean that they just sat there idly not trying to fight back there were massacres of farmsteads families sometimes though and the whole point of the searchers movie starring john wayne in the 1950s is actually based on a real bit of history where a local comanche tribe actually killed some farmstead people killed the family but took their daughter with them and actually raised them as a Comanche and basically in real life and in the searches, you had an extended member of the family an uncle trying to hunt down and get this woman back and so can we agree that stealing children and raising them in not in their ethnic uh, ethnically identifiable culture that's not cool for anybody to do okay so, as always, two wrongs don't make a right, but there can be no doubt that the vast majority of wrongs hang on the heads of the of the colonizers and the white people of America. So that's there, and it's interesting that they do show the negatives of that. There's also a really interesting scene with a hexagonal rifle, and that is a Whitworth rifle. Now, what's interesting about the Whitworth is this was actually a british rifle invented by an engineer called whitworth and he meant it for the british army and what he worked out and this is a thing worth remembering in things like the good the bad and the ugly and in loads and loads of westerns is let's talk for a moment about rifling please bear with me this is important and when i tell you this this will open up your eyes why in the Napoleonic era, did you have rows and rows of men standing in a straight line firing their muskets at each other? Surely there's a better way to do that. Well, the reason for that is physics. Allow me to explain. I'll allow it. All those muskets that you see at the time of the Napoleonic Wars or the American War of Independence, etc., they're basically a long tube, and at one end of the tube is, is the exit, the muzzle, and at the other end, that's where the gunpowder is going to be and the musket ball, a, you know, little spherical ball of lead. The problem is that when that gunpowder explodes, obviously it hurtles that musket ball down the tube. But the thing with the tube is it's just a simple metal tube. So that ball is kind of rattling down at incredibly fast speeds. It's sort of like it's bouncing off the edges very slightly. Which means that when it flies out the front, it doesn't definitely go in a straight line. It might be going very slightly left, very slightly right, very slightly up, very slightly down. And so, because of that incredible inaccuracy, that's why armies around the world with muskets fired them at round about 100 yards. Because that was the kind of limited range where it stopped going wildly off course. And you needed a row of people to ensure that you hit something. So, it was worked out. That if you put spiral grooves inside that barrel, that as that pellet, as that bullet went down the tube, the gases would fill those grooves corkscrewing around the inside of the barrel. So what does that mean? It means that the, 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 because they're sort of corkscrewing around the barrel, they're forcing the bullet to spin. And that means it stays in a straight line. Those grooves are called rifling, so that's why you can't call a musket a rifle, because a rifle by definition has those grooves and is substantially more accurate over a longer distance than something like a basic musket. Now, the vast majority of guns, the revolvers that you see in the Wild West movies, like the Colt Peacemaker, etc., they had no rifling. Basically, again, you got the same problem, and with a short muzzle, it means that they could fly off even more inaccurately. A handgun in eighteen seventy was basically almost a melee weapon. You had to be very up close and personal to the other person to guarantee you were going to hit them. But mind you, if you've got a revolver with six shots in it versus a guy with a tomahawk, you're going to win that that hand to hand fight, but of course you're then going to have to reload your revolver so that's what's going on there. Then we get to Whitworth, who, as an engineer, worked out that not only is rifling vastly improving the accuracy of rifles, but actually, why are we having these spherical or conical bullets? So he created a gun. The reason why it's got that sort of gun barrels design is because the bullets themselves had eight sides to them. So I said hexagon, I meant octagonal. Sorry, octagon, eight is in greek so anyway so he had these eight-sided bullets but that meant you needed completely different bullets for these rifles and the whitworth was accurate to up to half a mile which was a revolutionary jump forwards in terms of weapons technology at the time it was the most accurate long-range rifle in the world but it was hugely expensive to produce and to produce all that ammunition and i mean all the other ammunition was now redundant and so the british Army didn't pick it up as a patent. you could buy one, but it was not going to be standard issue for the British Army. However, in America, it did get picked up by a few people in, particularly the sharpshooters of the Confederate side in the Civil War. Indeed, there is a famous story that has been misappropriated to lots of different wars. It was from the u s Civil War and it was for the Battle of Spottersville. And this is the one where a Union general sees his soldiers cowering behind various cover, and he stands up and famously says, but what are you doing lying there in cover? They couldn't hit an elephant from this disc. (laughs) And then he gets killed by a Whitworth rifle. So, yeah, that's a real event that kind of proves the Whitworth accuracy. Now, as I've just said, those bullets were super expensive. So how did the Confederacy afford them? They came up with a genius idea of just having soft lead bullets so basically as it went down the barrel it was being forced into the grooves which meant that it turned into an eight-sided bullet ingenious and it meant that they had the best snipers in the u.s civil war but what we're seeing in this particular scene in the english is you get to see the effective distance of a whitworth now to be honest they are correct most of the time, it gets a bit muddy in the editing. But of course, if somebody's firing a rifle at you, the bullet's going to hit before you hear the crack of the rifle because the bullet travels faster than the speed of sound. But it, the gap is so great that that bullet seems to be going at subsonic speeds. But hey, it's the movies. But there you go, a little bit of physics for you in the middle of a cowboy show kind of thing so i you know i i think you could tell i had fun with that bit there as i was i was working out going hey that's a wet word there, yeah, let's have some some fun with that the other thing i love about it is because the emily blunt character turns up and and they appear in lots of different little tiny little towns where basically most of the it, it's it's one street and you've got a few sort of clapboard buildings but the vast majority of the buildings are tents I love it. In in certain scenes, you literally see in one place, there is a tent with sheriff on on a board at the front. It's sort of like, well, where do you put the prisoners? So because, you know, it hasn't been built yet. And it's a reminder of how recent America truly is. This is why American tourists come over and go ooh and ah when they see the Roman walls of York. It's like, well, you know, know, those are 2000 years old. I come from a city that 100 years ago barely had any sort of like fully built houses. So, you know, that's great as a reminder. But the thing is, a lot of people, and I'm definitely one of them, when I was a kid, I had difficulty fitting different eras into my head. So, for example, could an ancient Egyptian meet a Viking? Because they're both old. And certainly when we talk about the ancient Egyptians in the school, dates aren't really applied to them. Now, the reality is, sort of some of the peaks of ancient Egyptian history are from three and a half thousand years ago, whereas the peak of Viking history is just over a thousand years ago. So no, a Viking would never be able to meet the person who built the pyramids, for example. But some of these things overlap, and one of the things it took me years to work out It's because America loves churning out these Westerns, and it's seen as the Westerns were kind of like the most exciting thing happening in the world at that time. But of course, the Wild West was happening at exactly the time British imperial power was the number one power globally. In America, they talk about the Wild West. In Britain, we talk about the Victorian age, and they were happening simultaneously. And so they do a great job of kind of reminding you ...that there is a bigger world out there. And going back to that Buffalo Bill thing...
1: Who does his best to give the customers a thrill? Colonel Buffalo Bill!
2: Without giving too much away, I'm not going to tell you what's going on... ...but right at the end of the sixth episode... ...the epilogue of it, happening in 1903... ...so technically just past the Victorian age... ...is in the background of the, the final, really beautiful ending of this series... Is one of these Wild West shows. Now it's not actually the Buffalo Bill one, but it, it's 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 there for a reason, if you like. But it's a sort of a reminder about how this was happening, and and and, and this is why it was exciting. Because if you're sitting in a, like an industrialised city like Liverpool, you know, living in a slum, but you know you got plumbing at the end of the garden, you've actually got a, an outhouse to go to with actual flushing toilets, and you know there's electricity and trams in the centre of your city hearing about these people surviving in the last great wilderness where they could be attacked by wolves or rattlesnakes or survive a flash flood or native attack. All these things just feel impossibly glamorous and impossibly alien to the vast majority of of Europe, which is one of the reasons why it was so successful. Writing this stuff down was big business, basically. And so they, they have an element of that. You know, when you first see Emily Blunt arrive in her very much Victorian lady garb, she looks almost like an alien in terms of where she is and how out of place she is. The other interesting thing is, as the title implies, the English is, you've got What's an America? Now, by the 1870s or indeed the 1890s, it's relatively well defined, but there are still literally millions of people still flooding into America the whole thing about you know the the statue of liberty you know give me your huddled masses and all that kind of stuff they needed to fill the country obviously it's different today but there were literally millions of irish people italian people polish people etc coming germans etc my american ancestry if you date it back far enough they're basically welsh and german and these people decided to start new lives in america and You know, nowadays, my American parts of the family absolutely consider themselves 100% American, but also have this strange American thing about wanting to know where the family originally came from. You know, far more so than, say, somebody in England. And you get that in this show, because while there are a few people with proper American accents, there are people with Stephen Rear is in it and there are lots of sort of famous british or irish actors in it and they use their accents and that is absolutely acceptable it's not like they can't put on a bad accent there's a so-so comedy i kind of like it loads of people didn't call a million ways to die in the west which just shows you how horrible and awful the wild west was the american west is a terrible place in time everything out here that's not you wants to kill you angry drunk people Hungry
1: animals, outlaws. Oh, the doctor. I couldn't save her. She had a splinter. Doc, what the hell were you supposed to do?
2: And in it, Liam Neeson, kind of as a joke, is actually playing a cowboy, but he's got an Irish accent. It's all like, but that's okay because if we are in, let's say, the 1880s, he could well have come in from cork. Just five years ago, that that would have been a thing, an experience for people that, that happened in those times. So it it is showing you the secular experience, it is showing you the Native American experience, and it absolutely shies away from this horrible trope of this kind of spiritual, semi-magical, almost like a druid-type thing of the Native Americans. So, you know, Cheske talks about some of his culture that he comes from. He's a Pawnee, by the way. But he doesn't sort of sit there and go, oh, I will give you these herbs and these will heal you and, you know, magically better than modern medicine or anything like that. Not at all. And indeed, there are some illnesses which are actually critical to the plot, won't go into them, which nobody can cure because that's, that's absolutely medically accurate for the age. So the English is, I'm going to say, frustrating because literally everything I've said is good about it. Actually, probably the only negative thing I say is they go on a little bit about a certain topic. But apart from that, it should really, really work. But by the end, watching the final bit, it sort of redeemed itself. And I would have said, you know, rather than two and a half, it's probably three and a half. Maybe at certain points tipping to four. But it doesn't, it should be five star. It doesn't quite work for me. I'm not quite sure why. Like I say, there isn't kind of the right chemistry, but both the central actors are great. They don't have the chemistry of, like, Riggs and Murtor from the Lethal Weapon movies, or, like, a great love story like Romeo and Juliet or something like that. They're, they're fine together, but they seem like they are teammates rather than best buds or lovers. So, there we go. Hope you enjoyed that one, and as always, another episode coming out soon.